Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. C. Ray Harvey, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark, good to be here. It's great to have you here, C. Ray. You and Factor, who is the company that you work with, have been longtime supporters of the Entree Architect community. You were a sponsor at the annual meeting, our first annual meeting in 2022, and you were the sole sponsor of our business summit earlier this year in January, a great supporter of our community, a member of our community. And so I wanted to just have you come on the show and learn a little bit more about you. But let me introduce you to our community for anybody who may not have connected with you at any of those places. And then we'll jump into talking about some of the things that you're passionate about. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right. C. Ray Harvey is a product specialist at Factor, which is an app that connects people, projects, and invoicing for modern architecture and engineering firms. Through Factor, C. Ray works directly with customers to consult on ways to improve workflows using the Factor product. And internally, he works with the design and development team to continue adding valuable features to make it more effective for the firms that use it. Prior to Factor, he spent over a decade as a business analyst and a director in a growing professional services firm that grew to over 100 consultants and sold in 2021. And many of you probably have met C. Ray somewhere along the line in our community. He's been actively engaged in what we're doing here. But I wanted to invite C. Ray 
to come by and talk about project management and process and the things that he's passionate about and a lot of the things that our listeners are struggling with. So I think this is a great opportunity. Yeah. Well, again, I'm happy to be here. I could talk about process improvement and project management all day long. So I know we don't have all day long. We have to rein it in a little bit, but yeah, happy to be here. Those are my favorite conversations. Let's start with you. Before we jump into that information, I want to know more about you. When did you discover your passion for what you do? Maybe even who or what inspired you to get started in that world? Like a lot of people, I fell into what I was doing. It was not a very calculated path. While I was still in college, finishing up a degree that would in no way help me in my professional career, at least not in terms of what I'm actually doing with my hands day to day. I minored in music and majored in English. And there was a technology company in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is where I grew up for the most part, it's where I went to college, that needed a copywriter for website development. So to make a long story shorter, I got a part-time job there right away. They realized they also needed somebody not to just write copy for websites and things like that, but to help write software requirements. So fast forward after a year or so of joining people on requirements gathering meetings, which in a professional services world, what we did was build custom software. And there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between custom software development and architecture. Right. You know, you're meeting with a client, you're trying to understand what unique solution you're going to develop. What are their needs? What are their pains? How is it going to be like all the other things you've ever built and yet unlike anything else you've ever built? And what signature are you going to put on that software? There's a lot of planning, a lot of schematics that go into creating that. And then an enormous amount of project management that goes into creating a piece of software that can then be launched and used and lived in, not unlike a space. And there's so much that goes into the visual design of that and the flow of it. And, you know, what we'd call user experience in one world, you know, might be traffic flow in another. So anyhow, not to belabor the similarities there, as I got into the requirements gathering in the front end of that, I started to lead more and more of those sessions. You know, I was in my young 20s, but I was in front of very large clients that we were working with pulling requirements out of executives and found that I just loved the idea of designing solutions for people. And I also liked seeing those solutions come to life because nothing's more fulfilling than that. But in order to be around through that watching it come to life part, you need to get good at project management. So essentially, I, I then shifted into more of a project management role. And a little bit about the company that I was with, we built custom software out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was kind of at the middle or birth of farm sourcing. So, you know, it was inexpensive to have custom software developers in Indiana, where I'm from, build versus hiring companies on the coasts to do a lot of that same work. So we were getting a lot of national and even international business building really complicated systems. We had a lot of smart people here that just like the lifestyle here and things like that. So in front of these really big companies, our company was growing very fast. It was about 15 people when I started. As I mentioned, I was there for 12 or 13 years, I think I sent you in my bio. And over the course of that time, it grew to about 115 consultants. So along that way, our project management process has changed dramatically. And I had a big hand in that from the size of clients, size of projects, size of teams that we were running initially, and the practices that went with that from, you know, the development techniques and the design techniques, testing techniques, all of those things start to scale quite a bit as you ramp one thing up, you know, client size goes up, project size goes up, team size goes up, and you need a lot more complex practices. 
you need a lot more project managers also. So project management became a fairly large practice in our firm. And along with that, also business analysis, which is the design side of software development and gathering those requirements and writing up the schematics and things like that. And so I got to eventually oversee both of those things. I stayed involved with our larger clients, but was eventually running teams. And when you start running teams, you realize that all those little things that you did naturally or maybe, you know, just make sense because you've lived it at a small scale and you've gotten to watch it blossom are not so intuitive to people that get thrust in at, you know, already doing mid-size, large size projects. And it all of a sudden becomes really important to understand how to consistently manage a team, consistently implement practices and implement changes to process because if your process isn't changing, then chances of, of you scaling or growing are limited, quite frankly. So as you implement those changes, figuring out how do you propose changes to a team? How do you source ideas for change from a team and just accept that you don't know at all and that somebody on your team probably has a, a better idea than you? It's just a law of averages. Sometimes you're going to be right. Sometimes somebody else is going to have a better idea. And sometimes your job is just to figure out which is the right idea between a lot of great ones. So I had to live a lot of that. I had to grow up very fast through my 20s, figuring a lot of that out. And along the way, to kind of fast forward a bit more, a group of architects and engineers here in the Midwest were looking for an alternative to a lot of the software that was available to them in the aughts. And we developed a piece of software, not originally built as a SaaS product, but a piece of software that they could use for project management and planning, budgeting, resource scheduling for time capture and logging, expense logging, and then ultimately invoicing and reporting on progress. It was initially informed a lot by our own. I mean, we were also selling time, right. essentially. You know, we were also planning projects. We were doing a mix of fixed fee and hourly work. We did not use subconsultants, but that was a thing we got intimately acquainted with working with architecture firms and how you sometimes build your fees in. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes the work's hourly. Sometimes it's fixed. Sometimes it's not to exceed all these different permutations of ways of budgeting a project. And, you know, sometime around 2015, we said, you know what? You look at the landscape of products that are available right now to the AE industry, we've got a pretty good product here. This could be a product that serves and helps a lot more folks. And we got people that have gone on to work at PSNJ and other places like that, that were financial consultants and M&A folks and people like that, that also work specifically with the architecture and engineering space or the AEC space, got a lot of their input. They helped us design some of the more accounting side of the system ultimately what we came out with was factor you know we built that up slowly did a lot of testing we already had this base of users that were using it providing us awesome feedback so unlike a lot of the like, startups that go from nothing to they build a product then they're trying to find customers like we already had the customers we already had a product really and it just got refined and then evolved into the SaaS product that is now factorapp.com which you can just sign up for a free trial on our website and pay for with a payment method credit card and you're just paying a subscription when we were about ready to launch that in 2001 as a full-blown this is out to market anybody can sign up for it through the website it's not kind of a closed circle anymore this is just one of those funny life timing things the owners of that consultancy i worked for were approached about selling it was the right time it was the right deal and they said, that's great. But, you know, this factor thing, this is what we want to focus on full time and took a good chunk of the team 
that had been already focused on that and supporting it. That became the factor team. We were already used to working with architects and engineers and starting to get them signed on. And so in about two years, still the new kid on the block out here, factors grown. We work with firms of all sizes all across the US, East Coast to Hawaii. It's been great to see how different firms do things across the US. I'm sure you see the same thing. You get the same excitement from working with such a variety of different people and different geographies, different types of practices, different areas of focus in terms of industry and things like that. But a lot of them face a lot of the same struggles when it comes to growing from whether you're a sole proprietor or a small team and you're trying to scale that up to, you know, honestly, even the firms that I work with that are already 50 or coming up on 100 people, a lot of those same struggles just scale. They don't go away. They just scale. And so it's fun getting to apply some of that knowledge from being in a professional services firm, selling time and fixed fee and hourly buckets and trying to project manage something that you designed that was beautiful in concept and trying to land that thing. Getting to apply some of that now in this world is really fun. Getting to talk about how you balance resource capacity versus client deadlines and requirements and budget and making sure your projects stay profitable, you know, triangulating those three things and finding ways to consult and educate a little bit when possible with folks is a lot of fun. And then also just having a great product to give people that helps reinforce those principles and helps them level up is just, yeah, it's been a a really fun journey these last couple of years. And yeah, excited to watch it keep running. Yeah, what a great story. And I want to focus our conversation later on project management and the intersection of team and you know budget and your profitability and client deadlines and all of those things and how those things work together, which is really where the power of this tool focuses. But I want to jump back into your story and ask a couple of questions. <laughs> yeah. Just a few steps back, I wanted to just clarify for myself So Factor was a product that you had put together as a custom software solution for a client when you were working with the consultancy, or was it to explain that? Yeah, for a group of clients, and actually a handful of them are still with us, have been basically, we're using the prototype, I'll call it a prototype now, it was, you know, they paid for it, they bought it, they built it together, but it didn't have the Factor name yet. And some of them have been using it now for over a decade you know, from its earliest inception of simple time logging and invoicing software. And that's how a lot of these software start is you start with kind of the basics of what do I absolutely need to more effectively run my firm? I need to capture what we should be billing and make sure that gets built and make sure we're getting paid. That's usually the core. And then everything else goes into doing that more effectively, more effectively planning it, more effectively tracking it, more effectively managing it. And then, you know, ultimately making those projects more profitable. Yeah. So essentially it was the struggle that all of us face as architects came to you and your consultancy and said, Hey, we have this issue, these problems. Can you help us with software? And you put together right package that would work for them, which eventually developed and became factor after the company was spun off. Exactly. And it wasn't for lack of software out there in the universe that architecture firms can use. Of course, there's industry giants that have had software out there a really long time to solve a lot of these problems, but they're, to some firms, I think especially smaller firms, those solutions seem a bit monolithic. They've worked the same way that they have for a very, very long time. It's not necessarily the most intuitive way to do things. 
And in some cases, it's just overkill. It's as simple as that. And it's a lot to get into from a time and cost investment perspective for what you get back and what you're really going to use it for. You know, obviously, there are also a ton of solutions that have come around in the last five to 10 years as the SaaS market has exploded that allow you to do pieces and parts of what you need to run a business, whether it's if you've ever listened to a podcast, and if you're listening to this one, you probably have, you've probably heard an ad for Monday.com or Rike or these other kind of general great project management tools that exist out there for task management, even time management and things like that. But there's also an overhead that comes with creating a patchwork quilt of a whole bunch of systems. And then the glue between those is the spreadsheets that you're using to really manage what your budget is and really understand you know, what your agreements with subconsultants on a project are and what you still owe them and where you're at in your pay when paid <laughs> cycles and things like that, that getting out of that patchwork quilt can also be a, a huge stress reliever and just make running your practice so much simpler. I have one more question before we jump into more detail on project management. I want to go all the way back to the very beginning of your conversation, a music degree. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Why music and what kind of music? Just curious. You know, I perform in a, a local band here. It's kind of my hobby project. I perform electronic music solo. I play in a psychedelic rock band. I've played in a dozen bands going back to pre-college. And it's just always been a passion of mine. Once I got into school for it, it quickly became clear that I didn't want to become a teacher of the thing that I loved necessarily. I wasn't going to be as good for that. Yeah. And also that making a living trying to tour the country playing in small sweaty clubs was maybe not my bag either. You know, I still, I'll be honest, for the first several years of my professional career, I thought that was the side gig and that eventually, you know, something was going to take off and this is going to be what I do full time. I'm, you know, who doesn't want to be a rock star, you know, that's ever picked <laughs> exactly. up a guitar and strummed a few chords and said, maybe I could do this. But, you know, at this point, it's between family, career, and the excitement that I get from that. Music still brings me enormous joy. It's something I will do forever because I just can't quit it. But those aspirations of that being the full-time gig have fallen by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's some interest for the next Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting to have some music at our conference. And so there's several musicians in the community who are starting to think about maybe linking up and doing some music at the conference. And so awesome. maybe if you're at the conference, we can include you in that. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, I'm down to jam. All right. That sounds good. Let's jump back to project management. You know, as architects, we're constantly struggling with sort of all of the pieces of project management, making sure the team is there and make sure the capacity that you need for a project is there and understanding that capacity before the project comes in. But then also, once you have the project, what is the budget? How are you making sure that you're profitable? How can you track that budget along the process? And then having make that all work with the deadlines for the project to make sure that it ends up, you know, coming out not only profitable, but also on time to make sure your clients are happy. I wanted to talk to you about that because off air, you and I started talking about that. And that's your passion. That's the thing that you really love to talk about. So I wanted to bring this back around to that and share a little bit about that and maybe give some solutions to our listeners on how they can manage those things. Yeah, well. How a company scales directly impacts some of the pain that comes with what I call separations in project management. 
I'm talking project management kind of loosely. I'm talking about anybody that really influences the success of a project. That's not just project managers. That's also principals and owners. That's your office manager or the person, you know, getting invoices out the door. That's the people actually logging time to the project. And what happens, I think, in a lot of companies as they start to scale is you go from maybe being a sole proprietor, in which case you are all of those things. You are all of those people. Right. You don't have to update yourself on how much of the budget is spent versus how much you've invoiced. You don't have to update yourself on your capacity versus what your planned revenue is for the month. You're just signing the work and doing the work and getting it out the door as quick as you can and then issuing invoices as quickly as you can to follow in a lot of cases. As separation happens in terms of headcount, which is just growing headcount, people start to get a little more specialized. What can happen also is a separation of the global picture of what's going on. And you can see this start to happen in larger firms. It starts to get really bad until they figure out the tools to collaborate. But you can start to head this off very early on and saying, hey, we need to create a little bit of consistency. That's one ingredient to fix this. We need to create a cadence of communication. That's another thing. And then we need some tools to facilitate that communication. Those three things will carry you very, very far. Because otherwise, what starts to happen is you have a principal or somebody in sales, often principals in smaller firms, who figure out generally the scope of the project. What is the client need and what is that going to cost, at least in terms of estimates? So that's point one in the project life cycle at a grand view. And then you have somebody like a project manager, maybe still the principal. You know, it depends on size. These right. could be a lot of people wearing the same hats that plans the project and says, okay, well, if that's the scope and that's what we've got to spend, maybe even that's the timeline that the client has for us to spend in, what's our plan for hitting those targets? They create a beautiful plan that is just about to get smashed. In the next stage, when you start doing the work and tracking the progress of that work. And then maybe the final stage of that circle is invoicing, which is realizing the actual value. And the further your headcount stretches and the more specialized people get, the more separation between those different things you get. In fact, it's really common that there's almost like a angled split where that initial signing the scope and budget and the invoicing, almost the bookends of that process are still fairly connected. You know, how many times I've heard an office manager says, well, to know what I'm supposed to bill, I go back and check the contract. And what about all that stuff that happened in between, right? <laughs> right? And then on the flip side, you've got the people planning the project and trying to manage it. And the people actually doing the work are almost in some cases in some firms, and I understand reasoning for this, but I don't understand how it really serves the firm, are even a little bit blind to budget and especially how the work that they're actually doing, the, the hours they're logging and therefore the dollars they're spending are stacking up to that budget. And so that separation causes all kinds of issues, overruns in budget, which kills profitability, overruns in dates, which hurts trust with clients, you know, inaccurate billing and, and issues like that, or just taking weeks to figure out what actually needs to be billed to each client, which then delays cash flow and things like that. There's just all across the business, you cause issues for all of these different roles because of these disconnects. So again, going back to consistency, communication, and tools that facilitate that, having a regular cadence where you really get a cross-practice input into the health of your projects is critical. And project managers can spearhead this 
but it should be a concerted effort from everyone. There should be expectations that the people doing the work are timely in the way that they report what they're doing. So project managers have good data to work with. There should be some involvement from the billing department. And I really think that one of the key improvements that a company can make is get your project managers more involved in talking about billing and not just, you know, once a month you sit down and talk to each project manager about what they think they should bill, but just get a regular pulse of the project and input percent complete versus percent spent, things like that, like simple numbers that you walk into the weekly project manager meeting, you've already updated those on your dozen projects you're managing, and everybody can look really easily and say, how does my spend stack up against what I evaluate our work complete on this project or even on a phase-by-phase basis? How are we doing? It's really, really easy to see. Is there something we need to talk about here? And what do we need to talk about first? And also you get ahead of it then. There's actually a chance to steer and course correct before things are so far out of whack, which even in a month of logging time to a big project, you can get really far off course and it can be really, really hard to, to steer back on track. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career, master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. The other thing about communication is you have to have some level of comfort 
that it's okay for somebody logging time to see that they're running out of budget on a particular phase, on a particular task, and feel okay raising their hand and telling the project manager, I'm running out of time here. And the project manager has to feel okay not burying that information, but coming to somebody and saying, hey, I, right. I think it's time to talk additional services. I think we underestimated this. Or, hey, I think we made a mistake in resource planning. We're having all the junior members of the team work on this particular area. We're going to go over. Are we okay with that? We're going to eat the cost because it's training and it's fixed fee. Or are we going to try to go back for more money? And all that depends on client. Every, you know, every project and every client's unique. But you create this consistent atmosphere where communicating those things and knowing what the response is going to be to a particular thing. We run it out of time on a phase. This is what we do, or this is the rubric we use to decide what we're going to do. It's not on one person to be a genius and come up with a brilliant solution to every problem. You have some consistent ways of managing it. And finally, you got to have tools that facilitate that communication, not just, I'm not talking about Slack, you know, a way that you're Zoom, ways that you can talk back and forth. I mean, giving people the visibility to have those conversations, giving project managers access to budget. So that when they're planning resources, they can see right away, am I planning to the budget of this project or have I overspent it before anybody's even logged an hour to it? And as people are actually logging time, giving them visibility into how the budget is getting spent, it incentivizes them to log time more regularly because they're actually exactly. seeing the progress and there's actually value in doing it. It's not just a pain in the neck that you do every two weeks because payroll came around. It's something you're doing because you're all part of this conversation of making these projects more profitable, which in turn helps the business. So I'll pause there. You know, there's a lot that goes into this and a lot of things that just as companies scale, I think are easy to miss. It's easy as more people get involved to see more separation and less communication between and across those lines. It's also tough to find tools that fit this industry and some of the peculiarities or specificities of this industry that really give you that triangulation of what's my capacity to spend? What is my budget and my goal that I need to stay in for the client? And then where are we at from a profitability and planning standpoint? How are we doing? And, and you know, that's the whole game. If you can get those three things all working together, if you can get budget and scope and your capacity that you have to work with to all align in a way that makes you as profitable as possible, you're winning and you're going to keep scaling. And really the only way you can do that is to share information, right? It's so interesting to think about that in terms of being transparent to some level of what the project budget is and all the way from the top, all the way to the bottom. And so people can see the consistency and the cadence of a project and understand how the work they're doing is impacting the profitability of the firm, which ultimately impacts the project and them as employees, like you said, it actually incentivizes them to, to be more efficient and be more effective and to log their time because that's how they can track what they're doing. Yeah. And so if they understand the why behind the directive, they're more likely to participate in that. It's also interesting to me that it's so often in this podcast, I have a conversation with somebody. Sometimes it's about project management. Sometimes it's about profitability. Sometimes it's about you know, hiring, it always comes back to culture. It always comes back to culture. What you were talking about before, about making sure that the person at the bottom is comfortable saying, hey, I don't have enough time here. And, you know, knowing that they're not going to be punished for that or, or impacted in a negative way, that there's no fear of being transparent from the top or the bottom. That's a culture conversation, right? And so it's so interesting 
to hear that over and over and over again, to understand how important culture is that people are safe and secure in being able to share the information, both top down and bottom up. Yeah. And top down is a big part of that too. You have a responsibility as a principal or an owner to make sure that the people doing the work day to day down to your interns feel safe and secure sharing that information. You also have to guard your own safety and security. So transparency is an interesting thing. Actually, I work with an engineering firm and I don't know that this is original, but in the onboarding process, as we were going through and talking about their current workflows for invoicing, current workflows for project management, the owner there kept bringing up a phrase that he uses internally a lot, which is transparency with education. And I think that's really key. Part of feeling safe and secure as an owner is also having boundaries about what things you share. And so when I talk about sharing information across these different practices, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a free-for-all because with that, you lose focus. You don't want the person who needs to get a particular schematic updated that day to spend their whole day worrying about the profitability of the firm and how they're going to fix it. They're not going to be effective if they're doing that. But there's smart ways that you can share percentage of the budget that's spent on a phase without sharing the dollars and cents. There's ways that you can incentivize certain senior project managers on getting to a certain profitable level on their projects. And that may not be something you're comfortable with sharing because you don't necessarily need everybody worrying about how that profit is being spent. Without the education part of that transparency, people can make a lot of assumptions of what you're doing with that profit, that that's your new boat at the lake house or that's, you know, whatever. when really, oh, that means that I'm safe hiring a few more staff members to alleviate our capacity concerns because we've got a little bit banked up here and we are okay to spend now. You know, people don't realize necessarily what goes into that, how much of that gets reinvested into businesses and things like that. So there's ways of, sharing things in terms of percentages instead of dollars and cents. There's ways of sharing information with your team or just making sure that for you to feel safe, think about what you need to educate them on so that they know what you're doing with that information and therefore they know what to do with that information. I think that's a big part of culture too. You know, Transparent, open culture is not a free-for-all of information. That actually can be very damaging to people. It can create more confusion. It can create less focus and ultimately a lot more stress. People need to be stressed only about the thing that they can control. They don't need to be stressed about everything else that they can't. And Yeah. And that goes back to what you said earlier about consistency and cadence, right? That there's an expectation of what's going to be shared, right? That it's already determined what's going to be shared and how it's going to be shared. And everybody understands that, right? And so Again, top-down understands that, bottom-up understands that, and then there's no surprises. And that becomes a process in your firm, right? You really understand, everybody understands that this information is going to be presented. This is how it's going to be presented. This is when it's going to be presented. That becomes part of the process of the firm, which, you know, with those expectations managed, everybody's happy, right? Even if the news is bad, right? At least you know this is how it's going to be delivered. And when this is delivered, If it's good, you're going to act this way, right? And if it's not good, you're going to act this way. And everybody understands how and why the decisions are being made. It's really important. That's really key to the how and why is as important, if not more important than what the decision is. Because if people are looking for consistency in their own decision-making or other people's decision-making by simply looking at what people do, they are 
likely going to be very frustrated, especially when they look at owners, especially when they look at a business that is scaling and growing. Because what you do in a business that's two people is very different than what you do in a company that's 12 people, 20 people, 200 people. It's going to be different. So if you're looking for consistency that way, give up. But if you're looking at cultural values and how and why you make decisions so that you know, I'm going to bring up this type of problem. And I know when I bring up that type of problem, we look at it and we decide whether we're going to do A, B, or C. The way we decide A, B, or C is we ask these three questions. And based on those questions, it's, you know, it's sort of like, I know when I bring this up, I even kind of know probably which direction we'll go. But if we don't go that direction, I'll still know how we got to where we got to. And that creates security. That creates right. consistency, even when the actual solution has to change with the evolution of a company. Yeah. Yeah. So communication of information and a culture that can accept and understand that information is really the key to what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap up here, C. Ray, I wanted to ask you the one question that I ask everybody. And I think that this is a perfect question for this conversation because we just threw a lot at our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> right? A lot of information, a lot of steps, a lot of checkboxes on a checklist of making sure that your project management system is set up properly. What would you say is the first thing, right? What is the one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I am going to steal from you, Mark. I know you ask this same question to every guest. And so what I would recommend that small firm owners do is ask the same questions to their project managers. And by that, I mean, like we've been talking about this whole episode here, there is some value in consistency and people knowing what they're going to be graded on, what they're going to be asked. And so, you know, whether that is start with one thing, start with one question yep. that you need to know, get them really used to you asking and them answering that one question. So, you know, maybe don't start with something too general, like how are your projects going, but maybe get them used to on a weekly basis, their meeting. And they always know the question I'm going to be asked in the meeting is, how does your spend percentage compare to the percentage of work you think is done? And if you get everybody used to answering that one question, it gives you that base from which you can start to ask more nuanced and more influential questions that affect those two things. But that's what I would recommend. I would say pick one thing that is the leading indicator of whether you've got a project that's going to be profitable or not. And usually how much of the budget you've spent versus how much of the work is actually done is a pretty good indicator, especially if you're plotting that over time. If you've got a record of what somebody said last week and what was spent and complete then and what they said this week, what was spent and complete then, uh, you can start to figure out really quick if you're trending the right way also. So that's just one suggestion of a question. But yeah. I would say, ultimately, do what Mark does. Ask your team the same question. Ask every person the same question every week. Start building their sense of security and consistency in your team. You can build a lot on that base. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of asking the same question over and over again. And maybe it is one of those questions that at first it's a little painful to ask and a little painful to answer. And that first few times that you ask it and are answered, it's a little awkward and it's a little uncomfortable. But if you ask it over time every week or every day or however you set it up, it gets easier, right? It gets a little less painful. The expectation is set that, oh, I'm, this is a question I'm going to have to answer. I'm going to answer it. 
And then it becomes, you know, something that you're actually looking forward to answering because now you're prepared to answer that question because it's consistent. Yeah. Right. And again, like you said, there's a cadence every week. We answer, answer this question. Everybody in the room is going to answer the same question right now. Everybody's on the same page. That question, the answers are easier to give and the question is easier to answer. Yeah. And, you know, everybody knows how they're being graded. They start to have the conversations in and amongst themselves on the same level and in the same mental space. You know, everybody knows what winning looks like. And then you have to do less work as an owner (laughs) because people are carrying on the conversation you're having with them, even when you're not there. And it's a reinforcement of the culture, right? Every week, right? It's a demonstration of you're safe here to answer this question right? There's no consequence to answering the question. We're just looking for the answer so we can address the answer. Exactly. His name is C. Ray Harvey, the letter C, Ray Harvey. The company is Factor. You can learn more about Factor at factorapp.com. We didn't talk very much about Factor intentionally. We don't like these episodes to be commercials. I do highly recommend that you go check out Factor, factorapp.com. What's new at Factor, C. Ray? You've been with us for a year or so, a couple of years now. Yeah. As a member of the community, as a supporter, several times you've introduced and demonstrated the software. What's going on at Factor that maybe we haven't heard about recently? The Pulse. This is a new gathering of tools in Factor. Some tools that already existed, like you know, cross-project timeline management, cross-project resource scheduling, and cross-project task management, plus some new dashboards that let you look across projects and compare hours, budget, and even profitability if you have an owner view into those projects. We call all of these things together the pulse because it's like a project HQ of sorts that lets you very quickly figure out the health of your projects. Throughout the app, you'll see pages that you can get to in individual spaces that have a little you know, heart monitor indicator there. That's how you know it's part of the pulse. Or you can just go straight to the pulse and look across your projects and any of those facets, timeline, task management, resource scheduling, budget, profitability. And what these pages all endeavor to do is not just look across projects, which is part of the battle. Get out of that one project mindset, start looking at your portfolio. But they all also endeavor to cross those different practices I was talking about. So when you're resource scheduling, you can see the capacity of your people. You can see whether you're hitting their utilization targets, but you can also see timeline, deadlines, tasks, milestones that you need to meet and even see what percentage of the budget down to the phase level that you've scheduled. So again, you're keeping all three of those things in focus and one view, you know, have I scheduled all of my budget? How much of that budget have I actually worked? Am I overworking my people? Are they hitting their utilization targets? And are we gonna hit the client's deadlines? It's all right there in one place. When it comes to budget, you can plot over the lifespan of a project, five different indicators, all of which means something different, but what was our plan in terms of dates? What did we actually schedule our team to do? What did they actually log? Those percent completes are a manual thing that we can have project managers update in the system. So a lot of that, you know, asking your PMs to give you a percentage status that they think the work is done, we'll plot and then follow that. And then finally, what you invoiced. So at any point in time, you can evaluate all five of those or one or two or any combination of them in a number of different ways. And instantly visually tell the story of this project. We planned this, but we didn't have the capacity. So we scheduled a little bit less. So we logged a little bit less. So we invoiced a little bit less. And what do we need to do next? Well, we need to (laughs) devote more capacity to this project. If we're going to make up that timeline, we need to start logging more hours here. 
it just very powerful for analyzing what's happening on a project and the trend of that. And then all the detail that you need of like, well, how much of that was services? How much of that was subs? How much of that is reimbursables? Down to the phase level, which phases were we over on? Which ones were we under on? It really gives you a lot of intelligence for spotting when something is off, when two of those lines cross that shouldn't cross <laughs> and knowing how you should respond to it. You could learn more about Factor at FactorApp.com. You could try it for free. You can go download it, try it out. You could request a demo if you want. It's all right there on the homepage, FactorApp.com. C-Ray, thank you. I appreciate you for your support. You've been a, a great supporter, a good friend of our community. Thanks for developing a software that helps us manage our projects better. And thanks for coming by and sharing your knowledge on project management and process here at Entree Architect Podcast. My pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlepage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, 
us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.